Well, here we are again with T. Randolph and Friends, and today I have a very special guest, Michelle Wartner. Michelle, uh, how are you today? I'm doing great, Randy. Uh, how about you? I'm doing good. I'm very excited that you're here. Thank you. Uh, some too. of the podcasts I've done in the past, um, I was literally suffering from the flu. So I'm pretty excited that today I'm actually healthy and I'm feeling pretty good. So <laughs> You could be sick after the interview. I could be but... sick after the interview. And it's actually a beautiful day in uh, Southern California and it's uh, hot outside and it's, it's a beautiful day. Yes. So very happy you're here. And today what we're going to be talking about is the core emotional needs of human beings. Mm. And um, the reason I wanted to cover that with you, and of course I'm going to ask you a lot today about your background and your experience, mm-hmm. but I... Um, I just feel it's important that we start with uh, some of the things that really motivate and drive people. And what I'm hoping we can do today is uh, allow our listeners to learn about who you are and to understand how you came to be the person you are today. So, Michelle, with that, let me ask you a little bit about what do you do today? Oh, boy. I'm a therapist in Westlake Village, Randy, and uh, in private practice with Kairos Counseling Center. And uh, I love it. I love it. I made a couple of career changes to get to where I am right now, and uh, it just is a terrific fit at this place in my life. And when you uh, say you're in private practice, do you do you meet with people and talk with them about uh, like marriage situations, family situations, childhood situations? You know, I'm not the best marriage therapist in the world. I, I feel like I'm watching a ping pong match, so I usually defer that to another person in our practice who's an expert in that. But I do a lot with adolescents and a lot with young people who are really navigating the changes in their life and are feeling, to use your word earlier, hopeless. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've hit a dead end. They just don't know where to go. What would be the major emotional needs that human beings have that you see in your practice, but also just in life the way you've experienced it? I like the way you phrase that because I I hate to do things strictly theoretically Mm -hmm. as if you're talking out of a textbook. Um, What I found in dealing with uh, most people is the the chief core need that we have is acceptance, to feel like we're okay, like we're worthy. And for so many people, they may be in a situation where, uh, for instance, if we're talking about an adolescent, they're growing up in a household where uh, the parents may love them, but things are done in a way where they don't feel loved, they don't feel accepted, they don't feel needed, uh, they don't feel important. And so there's just this hole and this void. And the, uh, the uh, effort to come to therapy is to try and see what's wrong and to fill that void. I think human beings have this innate desire. First of all, we always talk about being loved. Mm-hmm. But taking it a step further, it's the notion that I want to be valued. Mm-hmm. I want to know that my life has meaning mm-hmm. and I want to be accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many times in childhood, what happens, I think, unfortunately, is we're rejected. We are not accepted. We're judged. We are told, I will love you if qualified love. I will give you strokes if performance love. And I think what happens so many times, you know, you, you talk with people, and I can remember when I was an early uh, um 
young man with, with my wife, and we would talk about childhood. And I never really understood the power that those formative years have from the oh, time boy. of birth, really, to I think 21, maybe 22. Because if you think about it, those formative years so in so many respects uh, create the framework for everything else that happens in your adult life. Because I know people right now, we're going to talk about this today, I know people right now who are in their 80s, in their 90s, still dealing with childhood trauma. Isn't that heartbreaking? Still dealing with the idea that my father never told me he loved me. Right. My mother never accepted me because what I did wasn't ever good enough. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think we... Do we, you see that? You see that, I'm Oh, sure. every day, many times. And I, I think what we do is we have a tendency as human beings to personalize everything that's going on in that situation, not realizing that this may be about our parents, that none of this really is our stuff. But if we're raised that way when we're one, two, three, four, you know, to use the analogy of a record, which some of the listeners won't even know what is that, you know, a phonographic Mm -hmm. record. But it goes round and round and it grooves into the hard drive. And so we're really hardwiring how people feel about themselves. We can do that in a positive way. But on the other side, we can do it in a very negative way. So those early years are super important. So many times what uh, what I've learned is this. With my own parents, what I had to ultimately conclude was this. Why was my mother the way she was? What happened in her life to cause her to be the way she was? Why was my father the way he was? What happened in his life? And I started to look at them in the framework of how can I understand them better mm-hmm. to appreciate why they were so dysfunctional? Um, and when I was able to get to the place of being able to do that, I was in a much better place to better understand my own emotions that would be conjured up when I was around my parents. Uh, I've been in therapy sessions where the therapist has used a word called fusion. Yes. I'd get around my mom, she'd say something, and I'd immediately become a 12-year-old boy again, and I'd fuse with her. And one of the things that I was being taught was that I needed to learn how to separate a little bit mm-hmm. from what they were saying. So when, so right now we're, we're talking, Ben, about core emotional uh, need. So we talked about one thing, which I think you said was acceptance. Is that mm-hmm. right? What else would you uh, identify as another core need that people have? Well, I think we have the need to feel purposeful in life as well. And it really doesn't matter what the purpose is as long as we have one. Uh, people generally get stuck and feel anxious and depressed when they're not moving, when they don't have purpose, when they don't feel like they're they're working up to their potential. Um, same thing in a relationship, you know, because that's really what we do, Randy. We're, we're relationship doctors, if you will. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go to a medical doctor to fix your leg, what have you. But we're looking at people's relationships with themselves, with one another, with God, with the people that they work with, with their spouse, with their kids. And it's that ability to connect, which is another huge core need that we feel like we really have to be understood at some level by other people. You know, and it's very significant that you should say that because uh, I feel honestly that our society today 
has this bravado of technology. And here's what I mean by that. People are told you will have value if you're staring at your iPhone 24-7. You will have value if you're sitting at a table and you're texting 24-7. You will have value if you have 12 text messages on your phone coming in while you're having breakfast with someone. Oh, and how many likes on your Facebook? Exactly. And you know what I have felt, and, I, and, and people, again, if you've listened to my show, you know I, about this. I want a new holiday, and I want to call it Freedom from Electronics Day. Okay. And here's what the holiday is. It's an entire day. It could be any day of the week. Here's the rules. You do not look at your phone. You don't use a computer. You don't listen to the radio. You don't look at TV. I love it. And here's what you have to do. You have to spend one hour with another human being without any technology, and you have to look at them right in the eye like we're doing right now, Mm -hmm. and you have to listen to what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to engage them in the moment. So um, there's another phrase, and I don't claim to be the author of this phrase, but I call it the tyranny of activity. Tyranny of activity is this. I will feel as if I'm important as long as I'm I'm busy. busy. And what happens is when you're busy, you never have the moment to have self-reflection or reflection about what is going on in my environment. And when I'm not reflecting, I never have the ability to perceive maybe things that could help me become the person I want to be or to feel accepted. And it's a great cause of anxiety and stress. And one of the things that we do as counselors in a cognitive behavioral type way is to get people to stop that busyness, to exercise, whether that's walking or it's riding a bicycle or it's swimming in a pool, Um, but to have that sense of alone time, uh, to meditate, to Mm -hmm. be in prayer, to go to church, to reflect, to stop. The Buddhists would call it the monkey mind, Mm -hmm. to stop the monkey brain and all of the crazy activity. Mm -hmm. That helps lower the stress level, reduce the anxiety. Well, right now we've talked about acceptance. Yeah. We've talked about, I guess, purpose or the idea that I have purpose. What would be another uh, core need that, that human beings have? Well, I think we have a profound need for connection. And we do know that when people stop the connection and they isolate themselves, they will become depressed. And you've seen this before, and you may have felt this before. I know I have as an individual where I'll notice I'm not picking up the phone as much to call friends. I'm not getting out to dinner as much. I'm not being as active as I could be in terms of engaging with others. And when that happens, when we start to isolate and avoid that that basic need of connection, there is the, you know, we may get depressed at that point in time. I think what happens with human beings, and I know this has happened with me, we get in the survival mode sometimes, or we think it's survival (laughs) mode. And what we say is, I can't talk to anybody right now because I'm jealous about their lives being so, quote unquote, perfect. So if I talk with them and I hear about another vacation or I hear about another good thing or I hear about another beautiful thing, I'm going to explode. I remember one time my wife and I were at home and I have to be honest and say this, it was Christmas time 
And, you know, people at that time were sending out hard copy cards and letters, and now I'm sure more of it's electronic. But here's what happened. We were going through a really tough time, and uh, I had a business, and it failed, and I lost a lot of money, and my marriage was on the rocks. It was really difficult. And I remember getting these Christmas cards, and they would have these fold-up, one-paged stories, if you will, about how perfect life was. I was in Ireland, and I was looking at the moon at 12.01 a.m., and I partied with so-and-so from the police or so-and-so from the Rolling Stones. And one time I got one, and they were saying, we were in Paris, and then we went to Fiji. And then I, I finally told my wife, I go, if I read one more of these things, I'm going to commit suicide. Or at least I vomit. I can't read this anymore. Right. It's killing me. Right. But if, I, if, if I'm honest, it was killing me because I didn't come to the place where I had to admit, Randy, you have to first start with, why are you feeling this way? You shouldn't be upset that somebody else is living their life. What you should be concerned about is why are you reacting this way? And what I came to learn was that ultimately I had to decide where would true peace come from? Where would acceptance come from? Where would love come from? Where would um, the fulfillment come from? And um so many times, and again, for those who are listening, we're, right now all we're doing is we're kind of outlining the the needs. We're talking a little bit about the landmines. Hang in there because we're going to start talking about all of the victory things that you can have. Uh, Michelle's going to talk a lot about her victory moments mm-hmm. through her journey of life. But the thing was I had to first look myself in the mirror and say, okay, why am I feeling this way and what can I do to address that? Because it's kind of like I can't fix something if I don't know what's broken. And what I had to do as an adult, and it was hard because as a child I was never able to do this, I had to come to terms with the fact that I was responsible in many respects for my feelings or emotions. I had to learn that I needed to come to a place where I could say, I'm not going to feel good if my wife loves me. I'm not going to feel good if my mom tells me she loves me, although of course I would. But I needed to come to the place where I could say, I'm a child of God. I know that I'm made in his image, and I am going to be able to proceed with life because ultimately my acceptance comes from the person who made me. You just hit on a huge one, Randy. Um I'm a Christian counselor, and that doesn't mean that I um, talk about Christ every minute of therapy, use Christian principles in everything that I'm doing every day with each individual. But what it does mean is there's a hugely spiritual component to mental health, and People come in all the time who are looking for something else to fulfill them. As soon as they get a bigger paycheck, as soon as they get that boat that they wanted, as soon as the perfect person arrives at their door and says, I love you madly, run away with me, we're going to Hawaii together, life's going to be great, and is going to read like one of those letters that you got that incidentally are usually (laughs) quite fabricated, and there's a lot of truth that goes on behind that as well. But the truth of the matter is that, that that hole that's in each of us that we're looking to fill can usually only be filled by God. And so 
we're looking in the wrong places to fill that need. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lesson. We're on a journey, aren't we? Think about this. What do human beings do? We try to fill it with everything, don't we? We want to fill it with TV. We want to fill it with the phone. We want to fill it with sex. We want to fill it with drugs, alcohol. It could be work. I could be a workaholic trying to fill that hole. I could be somebody who is in church trying to fill that hole. I could be doing all food. Mm -hmm. I could be doing so many things to fill that hole. And I think the, um, the deceit of the world is... We are constantly bombarded by the world telling us, if you do this, you will feel better. If you do this, you'll be happy. If you do this, you won't feel fear or pain or whatever. And then what we do is we buy the lie. We do what the world tells us to because we really don't know any better. And then we say, wait a minute, I just did what you told me to do and I still feel terrible. It didn't work. Didn't work. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if we say at that point, well, I'm going to try something else. But the desperation factor increases. That's another phrasing we use, desperation factor. And here's what I mean by that. I say to myself, okay, I'm going to date this girl. She's going to make me happy. Doesn't work. Okay. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do drugs. That's going to make me happy. Didn't work. I'm going to go out and surf every day at the beach. That didn't work. And what happens is it's kind of like we're adding weights to our shoulders. First weight's 50 pounds. Then I'm going to put another 50 pounds on. Then I'm going to put another 50 pounds on. By the time I get done putting on all this desperation weight on my body, I can't move and I'm immobilized. Is that what you see happening with people? Yes. And what I love, though, is that's when they end up in my office for the most part. Because now you're going to have to stop dealing with mental illness and start dealing with mental health. How does one get healthy? How does one get happy? And the definition of mental health, the best definition that I've seen, and I forget who it was that um, said this, Randy, but it is dealing with reality at all costs. I'll tell you who said that. It's my wife. (laughs) (laughs) She probably tells you that every day, She does tell me that frequently because I don't always have mental health. (laughs) Well, your darling wife is a good one who works on that all the time. But uh, the ability to deal with reality means the good, the bad, and the ugly. Life is tough. Life can be really, really hard. And for some reason here in the 21st century, we think everything is just supposed to be just, you know, dreamy all the time. It's not. You know, we watch actresses and actors on TV and everything is portrayed one way and we see it in the media. We see it in magazines. We read different things and everything looks like it's just great, like your friend's Christmas letter. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it's not. And really, the more evolved we get, the more we start thinking about those difficult questions. And the more we realize that we maybe have reeled ourselves out so far that we're going to have to get back in and start pulling up those weeds and getting rid of the things that didn't work and getting real. And that's why a lot of people want to avoid going into therapy because that can hurt, you know? Well, I think too what happens, and then I want to... um, talk about a little bit some some of the lessons you've learned in your journey you know the thing about therapy for, again for those who are listening 
anything that has value is worth fighting for. And if you're saying to yourself, I don't want to do therapy, it's expensive, it's a waste of time, people aren't going to, they're going to think I'm weird, they're going to think I'm not healthy, they're going to think I have a problem with my brain. What I want to encourage you to do is this. Be courageous, be bold, and get help. I think what happens is once you start talking and it starts coming out of your body, you put yourself in a place where you can authentically deal with whatever it might be that's troubling you. Um, and you're, you're, you have to look at it as if you're exercising your spiritual health, your mental health, just like you'd go down to the gym or you go to the beach and walk or you go running. And I want to encourage those who are thinking about getting some therapy to do so. I've done it for many, many years. I'm still doing it. But the idea is you want to try to be as healthy as you can be for those who love you. Loving yourself, loving your spouse if you have one, loving your family, loving those around you. Um, and the other thing is, so just a quick note on depression, there's a spiritual truth uh, which I'll reveal to you. And again, it's, it's all over in the Bible from God. When you give to others, when you help others, you will be blessed. And one of the strongest things I can recommend for those who are depressed, because I was depressed a long time, I couldn't get out of bed. When you start giving to others, when you start loving others, when you start serving others, it's like the magic elixir to kill and and rid of depression. I don't know what it is. It's a spiritual thing. I think it's a gift from God, but it's a spiritual truth nonetheless. And I want to encourage those out there. If you have depression, go start serving. Randy, I had a young 16-year-old woman who made the most profound revelation to me one day in a therapy session. And I'd been seeing her for about a year already. She struggled with depression. And one day she said to me, you know, Michelle, what really concerns me about this is I feel like my depression is so selfish. It's so self-centered because all I think about is, oh, me, poor me. Oh, this is bad. When am I going to feel better? When am I going to be happy? When is this going to happen and that happen? And she actually had that amazing piece of insight into herself because none of us get depressed unless we're beating up on ourselves. She did that in her head on a regular basis. And she even felt bad for doing that as well. But once she started to understand that connection between the self-absorption and the depression, and she started getting out and forcing herself to do it, which is the toughest thing, because we're calling upon people to just kick themselves in the fanny and get out at the time when they least feel like doing so. But I can't tell you how much I saw her life change after that point. What's interesting, I've had one of my good friends recently, a woman, say to me, I don't need my husband to be hard on me. I'm already hard on myself. Oh, you bet. We're our own worst critics. I, I don't really need anybody to do anything more because I'm already whipping myself 24-7. Yeah. Um, let me transition. Um your background, can you tell us a little bit about, yeah. uh, you know, your own... Which one? <laughs> That's funny. Um and I know that there are which yeah, ones. Yeah, which incarnation. Uh, what, I, I, what I would like you to do, if you wouldn't mind, is talk mm-hmm. a little bit about some of the things in life that have challenged you, um, how they directly went to the core 
needs that we've talked about Mm -hmm. and some of the things that you learned along the way to help you deal with that situation or situations and maybe some of the truths that God revealed to you about victory and how people can achieve victory in those situations. Well, you know, I grew up in uh, Northern California, one of three kids, the middle child, um, and uh, lived in Palo Alto. My dad was the administrator of a local medical clinic. He was an athlete in college. He played in the Rose Bowl. They won back in 1952. And uh, my brother was a little bit older than I was. He was very athletic, so I was always out being a tomboy, doing that kind of thing, and grew up, went to Santa Clara University like dad, got out, did everything I was supposed to do. I think, I thought at the time, uh, met a man that I loved, got married, had children, and uh, along that line, uh, things started to to kind of fall apart, and uh, I sort of had my eye off the ball. I worked in a first career as a uh, television reporter and anchor for NBC television, started in sports, and then worked in news and did that for any number of years, and I was doing that when my marriage fell apart. Um This is, and I'm going to backtrack a little bit, because uh, three weeks before my husband told me that he, quote unquote, needed a space, and I know people are laughing, it's so cliche, you know, it's amazing, Uh, but my father passed away suddenly and unexpectedly at age 63. Here was this big strapping guy who looked so healthy, he looked like he'd be around forever, and it was a few days before Christmas. I had talked to him on the phone the night before, and I was out for a run because Dad and I were training to run the L.A. Marathon together. My husband came up and picked me up in a car, drove me home, and without any uh, prep, just told me, your dad's dead, your dad died. And I literally hit the floor. My knees, it felt like someone hit me in the stomach with a baseball bat. My my father was my closest adult friend. We were simpatico. You know, one of those people where you talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, the person who got you and loved you anyway, that was dad. And uh, so three weeks later, my husband didn't say he was unhappy, but said he really needed his space. And over the course of the next couple years, things just went south rapidly. He moved out. I found out that he'd been involved with another person. And uh, my world, as I knew it, fell apart. I, I felt like I went from having a world where I had a husband, two children that I loved, parents that I loved, a father that I adored, to... All of a sudden, dad's dead. Mom can't connect because she's in such a world of pain. This is a man she's been with since she was 14. So she needs help. Um, And I'm wondering where the rug is that got pulled out from underneath me. We ended up getting a divorce. Um, My ex-husband, fortunately, now has rebounded somewhat and is a, a good uh, father to my children now, but this is 20 years later. But when this all happened, yeah. you were on financial straits, isn't that correct? Oh, let correct? me tell you. Because you basically, uh, when all this happened, were, were left to fend for yourself. Yeah. Um, 
you know, we were living in a beautiful neighborhood in Westlake Village. And so I thought pretty much things were fine. Well, I guess, unbeknownst to me, uh, when the divorce was filed, that uh, he said, oh, we don't have money, one thing or another, and refused to pay even any type of child support until the divorce was finalized. So there were about two and a half years that there was nothing. Um, I was no longer in the home that I was in. I was out of that, didn't have a car, didn't have uh, a job. So I went to work immediately after that as a music teacher at Chaminade High School, junior high school. And uh, that was a crazy, crazy time. (laughs) That was an insane year. So you go from a situation where your best friend, your your father passes your other best friend i would think your Mm -hmm. husband says i'm leaving you Mm -hmm. um you have to move out of the house is that what you had to do yeah and 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 he tells you i don't have any money and i'm not gonna be able to give you any money for an extended period of time and you have what two young children right how old were they at the time they were seven and eight Eight and nine, they were they were. Did pretty there little. come a time when that happened where you were uh, alone and thinking about all this? And did you ever say to yourself, "Why me? Why is this happening?" Did you ever have have some, like um, like a, a defining moment where you, know, you thought, "I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through this." I felt on an ongoing basis, Randy. Every other night, am I going to be able to get through this? But on some level, I knew I would because I had to. Um, the fact that I was not given financial support was a real interesting thing because I had to define myself in a hurry. The broadcasts that I'd always done required me to travel and to be away quite a bit of the time. And, and here I was, I had nearly full custody. Their dad had them every other weekend when he was in town, but he was traveling all the time. And he was in a frame of mind where, let's just say, family wasn't at the top of his list. When, when this happened, did you have mm-hmm. any fear did you ever wake up in the middle of the night with your eyes wide open? Randy, I didn't fall ceiling? asleep. I, I didn't wake up in the middle of the night because I was not sleeping. Were Every you, other night I was not sleeping. I was terrified for two solid years. I was terrified. And how did you cope with the terror? Well, we, you know, on my mother's side of the family, we have quite a history of substance abuse. And so that was another thing I was very afraid of was... I didn't want to go anywhere near that. You, know, My, you didn't want to self-medicate with alcohol or you got drugs it. You to got get it. through the pain. Right. Because you were fearful, if I start doing that, I could get addicted. I'm... Absolutely. And my children had already relatively lost their father. At least they'd lost him as they'd known him. They'd gone from seeing him nearly every day to all of a sudden they're seeing him, you know, 10, 15% of the time. So he's gone. The sense that they knew him, he's gone from their life. And I realized that had that been me as well, they, you know, they wouldn't have had any parent. So that was not an option. Um, where people would be taking sleeping pills and Ambien and these kinds of things. I simply did not sleep for an entire evening. I guess when I, you know, the next day I would tell myself, okay, good, this is exciting because now I'm so exhausted. I will sleep. Then I would sleep. Then the next night I would not sleep because I would have had rest from the night before and this went on for quite some time. And I'm telling you, I know what it's like when people say I literally felt crazy. There was certainly a time period at the end of the marriage when my husband left and a couple of years after 
trying to get the family back together. And by that, I mean with my children, starting this new family with the three of us, where I literally felt crazy. I couldn't focus. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't sleep. I lost over 20 pounds, and I was television thin to begin with. So at 5'9", I was wearing a size 2. Wow. That was not me. So when this was happening, um, well, I got a lot of questions, but I want to ask this. Was there anybody around you who said, I want to be there for you, or were you walking this by yourself? I was walking it by myself, but two fascinating things happened. I was interviewing for work after that very brief position at Chaminade where, you know, I either the kids were going to kill me or I was going to kill them. I didn't know which. <laughs> and uh, I went to work very, very briefly for a, a security company selling security systems. Met a guy there by the name of Dan Williams, who was a faithful Christian and Dan saw something in me laying it down for my kids that he thought this woman is going to knock the ball out of the park. I mean, she could sell ice to Eskimos. So he brings me on board. I start doing that for a relatively short period of time. I'm telling you, this was wacky central time period, just mm-hmm. going, what am I going to do? But I've got to do something. And here we go. So about six months later, Dan leaves and he goes to a leadership development company called Lee Hecht Harrison, which is an international firm. Dan called and said, I want you to come to work with me at Lee Hecht Harrison. You would be fabulous in this. This was executive coaching and leadership development, and it was a perfect fit. Now, during that time as well, um, I have to say the Lord reached out and was pulling me out of quicksand. There were Christians being dropped at my doorstep, and I'm not talking about literally. I'm talking about figuratively being dropped at my doorstep on almost a daily basis. And Were you a believer at this time? Did I, you believe in Christ? I grew up as a Christian and a believer of Christ, but through my 20s and my early 30s, my husband was not a believer. I just kind of let it fall by the wayside. And you better believe when everything hit that I was on my knees again saying, Father, help me. And in my head, I'm sure 50 to 100 times a day, I was saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. That was my mantra. That was a hard time for you, wasn't it? Randy, you're getting pretty emotional right now. I can see it. That was hard. There aren't words. Mm-hmm. There aren't words. And um, who was riding in the car with you when you were driving? <laughs> the Lord was my passenger in the car, and I could picture him as if he were flesh and blood sitting right there. Tell, and, tell us about that. Well, <laughs> tell us about driving with Jesus in the car with you. I yeah, you know. Being so alone through all this, having mom having her world of her dad being gone, my ex-husband being gone, work being gone, everything that I knew, my home, everything being gone, financial stability and everything. I would be in the car after I dropped the kids off at school, and I would be driving, and I swear to Pete, I could see Jesus sitting in my passenger seat going, so how are things going today, kiddo? You know, and I'd go, man, it's hard. I'm not getting sleep. And he would just be the most 
calming, wonderful presence. And I can tell you, he also has a terrific sense of humor. <laughs> because he would get me to laugh at myself. And for those of you who are concerned right now, you probably should be. I was not speaking out loud. My lips were not moving while I was in the car. But I could hear our Lord's reassurance that he was going to get me through this. Randy, what happened after that was nothing short of a miracle. Once I started going to um, Lee Hecht Harrison, my income went from... Gosh, I think I was making $2,000 a month as a music teacher at Chaminade, and it went to well over six figures, and I was buying real estate and started doing all kinds of different things for the security of my children at that Mm -hmm. point. I knew I was basically terrified to ever put my trust in any human being again after that point. So it was kind of like, you know, Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind is, God is my witness, I will never Mm -hmm. go hungry again. Mm -hmm. It was like that, but it was like, Father, help me, grow me, make me strong, heal me in my broken places, and let me see what I need to see. Let me know where I can be of value. The the executive coaching, uh, I started doing work for Universal Studios, mm-hmm. for J.D. Power & Associates, mm-hmm. for Amgen. Um, for those who are listening right now, let's. I'm going to give you a couple examples. Uh, someone who um, maybe uh, has been through a divorce in their yeah. early stages, and it's a single mother, uh, frightened for her children, worried about where she's going to get money to pay the rent or the house mortgage payment, um, and maybe isn't someone who uh, is a believer uh, or someone who is already walking with God, what would you say to that person to give them um, some some definitive words of, of uh, from you to help them maybe in, in mm. the moment? While, for example, there could be someone right now, mm-hmm. they're at home, they're listening to this, and they're saying, you know what, um, you two sound pretty sophisticated. You two sound pretty good, but I'm just a regular person. I'm out here in the Midwest or I'm out here in Alaska or I'm wherever. And if you really knew my situation, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying, or you you would be saying something entirely different. What would you, what what kind of words can you share with, with someone like that or in that position? That's such an interesting question, Randy, because I, I don't share all of this with people who come to my practice. I I keep a lot of it in myself. And uh, I do pepper things throughout when I think it's it's necessary. And yet, again, coincidence, I think not. The Lord has walked so many people into my practice who are going through that very thing. And I will literally hold their hand and pray with them at the beginning of a session, after a session. Um, and these are people that come in and you don't know if they want to pray or not want to pray. Right. And I will ask them, I'll say, would you mind if we said a prayer? Are you okay if I pray with you? 
nine times out of ten, that will bring a tear to a person's eye because they feel so alone. They feel so abandoned. The the sense, you know, even as you're saying that, I'm I'm getting this visceral response while you're conjuring up these people because I know they exist in the hundreds of thousands, men and women who feel discarded, abandoned, betrayed, walked away from, worthless, just you know, I don't care, but you'll be fine and whatever. You know, I'm fine, so figure it out, deal with it. It's, it is the toughest, it is one of the toughest things that I see people have to walk through. And um, I, I just implore them to find someone. Um, of course, I have my faith, and that's where I would prefer people go. But Randy, they've got to, you know, we have to be realistic. That's not going to be everyone. And they have to find someone who will be there for them, who can share for them, because this is not something that we can put on our children. Um, they've already gone through enough loss. Mm-hmm. So if we break down and just put everything on their shoulders, it's only going to even be tougher. You know, one of the things I want to share with listeners, and I'm, I'm going to say this, I I really feel led to tell you this. Never, ever give up. Remember that you are valuable. You are a human being, and you are made in God's image, and he loves you. You may not be interested in who God is, but he is interested in you. And you may say, well, if there's a God out there, why is he allowing me? Why am I going through this crap? And I would just say this to you. Many times in life, things happen. We don't like what's happening. We don't want it to happen. But you could look back and say, God allowed that to happen to me so that I could grow and become the person he intended me to be. It's like a tree. Trees get stronger during a storm. When the wind's blowing and the rain is coming and they're getting tossed around, that's when the tree gets strong. Thanks for listening to T. Randolph and Friends. Please write to us or check out our website, blog, and conversations at trandolphandfriends.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on topics and guest ideas for future shows. We are listening to life.